Hello and welcome to the Women's Energy Council podcast, where we explore lessons and advice from some of the most senior energy executives, focusing on transformational leadership. With your host, Amy Miller. In the next episode of the Women's Energy Council series, I would like to introduce you to Gina Fife, CEO of Integra Petrochemicals. Gina will be talking to me about being the second woman ever to be hired into the ExxonMobil Petrochemicals marketing team in the UK, the opportunities afforded to you when you don't have an end game in mind, her work in mentoring postgrads, and her skill set when it comes to recruiting and retaining good colleagues. Gina, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. Pleasure to have you with us. Um, I wondered if we could start really at the beginning and tell us a little bit about your journey from kind of the end of education um, into joining the oil and gas industry. Okay, well, that's a very long time ago, (laughs) but let me try a little bit. I graduated in biomedical sciences at the University of Edinburgh. So I wasn't, I guess, your typical example of somebody who would join the oil and gas industry or the petrochemical industry. And what happened is that, I mean, it's really quite sad, but what happened was that I wanted to, I planned to do a PhD and I had no interview experience. And my tutor at University of Edinburgh said, uh, why don't you do some of the milk round interviews, get a bit of interview experience, and that will help you with your PhD interviews. And what happened at the end of that is I was offered a job by Exxon Chemical in Southampton, where their head office was at the time. And what I decided to do, having got my PhD place as well, is to give up my PhD place and join the graduate marketing scheme of Exxon Chemical, or Esso Chemical as it was, in Southampton instead. Uh, So that's how I joined the, the petrochemical, the oil and gas industry, by coming out of medical school and joining a petrochemical company. So not your standard chemical engineer or PhD chemist. And in fact, from what I heard afterwards, I was very much uh, an experiment um, because at the time I was the second woman that they'd ever recruited in marketing who wasn't a secretary and I couldn't type. So I was never going to be able to fall back on that. And the one before me was a a lady who became very well known in the industry uh, called Rose Rivas. And so I was the second woman, and I believe I was the first person who'd been in medical school or studied some form of engineering or chemistry to join, certainly in the UK. So that was very much, you know, quite a big step for Exxon and accidentally a big step for me because I obviously didn't realise that at the time. But it's funny because the more I speak to people, the more I realise how many people enter the industry in in such a circuitous way. And and kind of not by the standard route. But do you have any regrets on not going back and doing your PhD? Actually, no, because I was really fortunate because, in fact, we were joking about today because I do some pro bono work with the University of Edinburgh. And we were having that kind of conversation today about actually what biological sciences, biomedical sciences actually give you that's more than a job in a research establishment or in a university. And I always say that my degree and my university time taught me to think because it was qualitative as well as quantitative. And it kind of opened my eyes to different opportunities. Joining Exxon Chemical, you know, wasn't to a certain extent career decision, you know, it wasn't a big plan. But in all honesty, I tend not to have end games. Things kind of pop up 
and I guess I'm quite flexible in taking opportunities. And that's what's gotten me where I am today, I think, very much. And I was actually working today with the university on the possibility of a, a master's degree in medical science but with some business and entrepreneurial segments to it with some extra mentoring, some industry time as well. And instead of this master's being one year, it might be 18 months. And we were talking about what the benefits of that would be. And we were saying, but what this would really be is your training in biomedics or maybe other industries as well, almost certainly in other industries, leaders of the future. Because you can't lead a company, usually, if you don't understand some business principles. And I was very fortunate because I came out of university with no understanding of business. I don't come from a business family. And Exxon gave me some of that knowledge and that education. So I don't regret it at all. I was lucky because my university at the time thought I was barking mad. What on earth was I doing? I must be crazy. And so they guaranteed me a master's place to go back. As long as I admitted my mistake, came back within five years. And I do go back to university, but I go back to university in a, in a very different capacity than I guess they imagined uh, 40 years ago. Do you have any thoughts now about going back to that and doing any additional kind of academic study? The day that they offer me an, an honorary doctorate, I'll go and I'll accept that. That's fair. I think that's fair. I think that sounds decent, huh? Um, I think so. No, no hints out there, guys. You know, no plugs for that. Um, <laughs> but, um, I mean, I still get involved in a, I mean, I'm really very, very fortunate in the position I have or the position I've made for myself in many respects because I get to do a whole pile of different things. And, you know, that keeps everything fresh, keeps everything interesting. I work with undergraduates. I'm looking forward to mentoring, hopefully, and doing a little bit of work with some postgraduates in this master's course. I've spoken on sustainability and various other things at university pro bono. And, you know, I just stick my nose in all sorts of different places. <laughs> next question was going to be what is it about the industry that you're in that kind of keeps you interested and excited and, and wanting to work in it it sounds like part of that is that ability to do so many different things and be flexible like you said I guess because of the niche that I carved out for myself, partly accidentally and partly intentional, because as I said, there was no grand plan. I think that's been one of the things that's actually worked very well for me because I didn't have an end game, basically, I suppose, because I didn't know what I was doing most of the time. But, uh, you know, I didn't know what the next step was going to be is perhaps more appropriate. But that has allowed me to be interested in lots of things. I mean, people sometimes say I'm a little bit unusual which I think I take that as a compliment. But we, you know, I founded Integra, you know, 31 almost years ago now because I needed a job and because I thought I could do things differently to the way that things were being done at that time. And I just wanted to know if it would work. And other people were asking me to come and work for them because I'd already left Exxon. And people were coming, well, you know, you worked for Exxon, this isn't going to work, you were never going to be a trader, uh, blah, 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 blah. You know, why don't you come and work for us, set up a desk and so on. And enough people were asking me that, I thought, hmm, you know, maybe I'm not so bad after all. <laughs> maybe I just do this myself and then I can do it and I can build it the way that I see it. It will be my vision. And if it fails, it fails. If it works, Great. And I actually thought that it had a five-year lifespan. 
But because of the success of that company, that's allowed me to and, uh, and my family to look at ship owning. I mean, we're tanker owners, but I'm interested in all sorts of sustainability. And so, you know, my weekends and my evenings, sometimes when I'm not busy with petrochemicals, I look at, we've invested in all sorts of things to do with protein and food because I'm concerned about water and I'm concerned about people having enough food. And so we've been, but I also don't want that to be done in a polluting way. And so we've been working on sustainable shrimp farms in Asia. Now, we don't have to do all the work ourselves. There's other people doing that, so we're very lucky. But we get to guide and lead that to a certain extent. You know, we're working with a company in fish farming in Singapore um, because Singapore has decided it wants to produce 30% of its food itself by 3030. And of course, COVID accentuated that. And so we have a project, we're investors in a project in Singapore that produces barramundi and uh, red snapper. And it does it in a, a really clever, techie, techie way that I wouldn't pretend to understand. But it involves a lot of Siemens technology and Siemens as a partner in it. And you can almost identify the fish by the face. It's quite freaky. That is weird. <laughs> it's a bit of an exaggeration, but you can use technology to check the fish are well, check because they're swimming properly, you know, they're moving properly, they're feeding properly. That allows you not to overfeed them, underfeed them, save food. You make sure they've got enough oxygen. It's really very, very clever. And at the end of the day, that type of technology, I think, is going to be very useful for many different uh, purposes and many different things. So I'm interested in farming. We have sheep, that type of thing. But the beauty of it all is that it all started with petrochemicals. Also kind of, I guess, an entrepreneurial flair to an extent. You know, you said before you don't come from a business background and you've kind of learnt, I suppose, what you have done kind of on the fly. And, you know, as you've been going in the different roles that you've been doing and you've launched your own business, where do you think that kind of that passion and that entrepreneurial spirit came from? I really don't know. You know, many members of my family are quite entrepreneurial in different ways. You know, I come from a large family, not a large direct family, but I have enormous numbers of cousins. And it's wonderful to see the younger ones, my younger cousins, starting businesses, building businesses, being incredibly successful in what they do at a, at a very young age. So I don't know where it comes from. It's in the family blood. <laughs> it must be. I mean, I went to Edinburgh originally to study genetics. If I'd been better at it, I probably would have still be there and I could have answered your question. But you would be interviewing me anyway, so... <laughs> I think, I, I think genetics is a good answer. <laughs> I, love, I love new ideas and I love creative solutions. And I really, people quite often ask me, what skill is it that you're good at? What's made you successful? And I've thought about this really, really, you know, a lot. How come? Why? I'm stubborn like hell. I'm sure my husband and my kids would tell you that. Um, <laughs> and colleagues as well. But if I have one skill, it's finding and retaining incredibly good colleagues. I think it's really important to be able to recruit and work with people who have better skills in a whole pile of areas than you have. And I seem to be good at that. I mean, I've worked hard at it, I have to admit. And it's a skill that I've learned over many, many years. But I don't think that it makes me smarter if I can employ and work with people that are 
less smart than me. I really enjoy being surrounded by people who are a lot smarter than me because it gets you to up your game and you learn new things every day and you see different ways of looking at things. And, you know, I think that's fascinating. And of course, that's one of the things that led me into diversity. You know, it started with, wait a minute, there are no other women around here. Why are all you guys going to these conferences? I'm sitting here. I'd like to network as well. To realizing that actually diversity makes us stronger as a company. We have, I think, just over 50% of our, our people are women. And that's not something that we consciously do. I understand the need for quotas. I understand why people do it. We've just never needed to because we just seem to have, you know, I don't think we have this unconscious bias. We just want to have the right person, the best person for the job. And that doesn't matter their age. It doesn't matter their background. If they're a little bit different to the rest of us, that's great because otherwise we have same speak and we all make the same mistake. I think having a, a more diverse organization helps you. It maybe means that you take a little bit longer sometimes to make big decisions. I don't think you necessarily make better decisions, but you make fewer mistakes. And in certainly in a petrochemical distribution trading company, logistics company, making fewer mistakes is already a very good thing. I think that's helped us survive. You mentioned, you know, joining Exxon at a time where you were the second woman, you know, a certain role to come into the business. So I imagine you have seen a change in diversity and inclusion over the last kind of 30 years or so. But have you seen a change in the way it's discussed and, and actioned? And, and if you have, what does that change look like? Well, it wasn't that I was the second woman to come into Exxon Chemical in the UK in a certain position. I was the second female graduate. I was the second non-typist or secretary. That was across the whole marketing organization. And when I managed to get myself into the position that I went to the refinery, I found I was one of five and I was the only one who wasn't an engineer, which is why they hadn't wanted me to go. They wanted to move into IT. And that would have been a really bad idea. And I did try to explain that, but apparently that's where you put women. And I wasn't going. And they asked where I wanted to go. And I said, I wanted to go to the refinery or to the petrochemical. And they said, I couldn't. I was young. I was female. I was marketing. I wasn't an engineer. And I figured out that best would have been, at that time anyway, you know, in my mind, probably not true, but in the mind of a young graduate in the UK, that if I was Anglo-Saxon male, chemical engineer from the Baton Rouge refinery, I was going to do really well. But I couldn't do most of those things. So I decided I'd like to go and understand a bit about what this company was really about. At the coalface. And so I said, I was sorry, but if I couldn't go to the plant, I quit. And so I was sent to the plant as a punishment. <laughs> and it wasn't a punishment. I mean, parts of it were the worst two years of my life, but other parts of it were really, really good because I learned an enormous amount. And people were very generous with their time and helped me a great deal. Eventually, after two years, they'd forgotten that I wasn't a chemical engineer because I wasn't doing a job that needed a chemical engineer. I was a planner. And I spent a lot of my time on the jetty and in control rooms trying to plan production and plan feedstock deliveries. And that got me into shipping. And that got me a job in Exxon Chemicals head office in Brussels. And that got me a job as a trader that led me to found my own trading company. Everything happens for a reason, right? Yeah. And as I said, I needed a job. So I thought, okay, why not? I thought it had a five-year lifespan, but that was 31 years ago. So well, I was obviously wrong. 
Yeah, thank goodness you are. I I think so, because it's been a very, very fun and enjoyable journey for me. And I think for many of our staff as well. I think we've had a good time together. And that's something, I mean, you know, trading is a very serious thing, especially physical trading, because, you know, there's nowhere to hide when you make a mistake. You know, you can't just trade it away on the screen and just take the loss. It tends to be a bit more difficult than that. But I think we've had a lot of fun together over the years and I think that has helped and it very much shapes the culture of our company. It's important to enjoy what you're doing because you're doing it for a long time. Well, well, that goes back to you kind of finding and retaining the great colleagues, I think, that you were saying before. Do you think it's just you've got a good judge of character or what do you think makes you successful at being able to find those right people? I guess not necessarily looking always in the obvious places and being very, very open. I mean, I I don't these days do the the recruitment myself, but I have to admit for any senior position, you know, a senior shipping or operating position or a trading position, I would like to be part of that first or second interview process. But because we have a relatively strong culture, people tend to have that same openness in recruitment. So they will not necessarily, you know, we don't use algorithms So we're not necessarily, depending on the job, looking for somebody who fits that job a thousand percent. You know, quite a few of our traders have chartering and logistics and operational backgrounds. Now, I think that makes a lot of sense if you're a trader, especially if you're a physical trader, because you're going to make fewer mistakes and you're not such a pain to your colleagues and they don't have to be watching your back quite as much. So it actually helps the organization. But we've got people in risk management, you know, came from different paths. We tend also, when we when we put out a job advert, we also will put that advert out internally. And if we've got somebody that wants to move into a different role, If we can let them try it, then why not? That means that it's, while we're not a massive big company, I mean, you know, what are we? One, one and a half billion dollars turnover. Guess about one and a half. But if we can let people develop through the company, if that's what they want to do, then we will. One of our really good European petrochemical gas traders was our global head of chartering for 13 years. And he built up his career in chartering. There wasn't another bigger chartering role for him. And he rather fancied this sort of trading thing. And to be honest, he was going to be damn good at it and was interested in trying it. We gave him the opportunity to try it and it's worked out very well. But when he joined us, he had two university degrees in shipping related subjects. And he was working as an operator in dry cargo, I think, or bulk, in London. And we brought him from London into Brussels in chartering. And he's now the senior Olafen trading guy sitting in Switzerland. And he's doing that mm-hmm. well. Yeah, I guess it speaks to kind of, you know, you can teach people the skills, but you can't teach the culture. You know, either you you have the right cultural fit and Mm. in an organization or or you don't sometimes. And you can bring the skill after that and you can hone those skills and teach people and train them. But it's just that kind of inherent cultural fit that is so important. Well, the culture of the company is important and you, you either fit or you don't. We're lucky. Our culture, it sounds as if our culture is really quite narrow, but our culture is that we're multicultural and that we're very diverse. I think the youngest person in our company is probably 25, 26 maybe now. 
and the eldest, don't tell her I said this, but I think she's, I think she's about 73 older than that. We have 20, 25 different nationalities. We all speak good English, but we tend to speak at least one other language. And we come from a wide range of backgrounds, whether we sometimes play this game where recent recruits, you know, to help them get to know people in the company. Can you guess who in the company was a journalist when they first started their career? Can you guess who was a professional football player? Can you guess who was in the Queen's National Guard sort of thing? You know, we've got this really wide group of different backgrounds. And nobody ever gets it right. No, I don't think you would guess who used to be the professional footballer. That's going to be a tough one. (laughs) Well, I can tell you, it's actually Giuseppe Cabucci, who is the head of our office in the US. And he played for Napoli at the same time as Maradona. Wow, that's one of the things to do in um, in that game, two truths (laughs) and a false or whatever it's called. (laughs) Two truths and a lie. Well, let me ask you, well, let's go back to the diversity side, because um, you were a founding member of the Women in Shipping and Trading Association. So I just wonder kind of how the association came about, really. Well, it kind of developed for over a few years. And it's actually today the birthday of one of the founding members, who's a lady sitting in Greece, but was working as a shipbroker in London at the time. And they got together this sort of little UK group of women and then looking at it in a more international way. And what it was about was really rather naughty, that the guys, and it was the guys, you know, they were doing the networking, they were going out to lunches, they were going to the conferences, they had their networks, and there weren't very many of us. And we've never really got the opportunity to mix or mingle unless we were flying to London on the weekend and meeting up with other people, which seemed rather silly. And so we felt the opportunities uh, were less. And so we had less working opportunities. And well, you can bitch and you can complain about it or you can do something about it. And so we decided we'd do something about it. And WISTA was formed and then WISTA, WISTA International was formed. And it's amazing to see how big that organization has become. And it's made up of chapters. So it's again, it's a very country or even city-centric organization made up of individual and separate chapters who decide what's the best thing for them. You know, if they decide they need to operate a whole power legal courses, or they decided they needed to organize dinners and cocktail parties, or training and ship operations, they'll do what they want. And they might get support and help from other groups, other chapters who've done that already, or who are interested in participating. And then they come together once a year in a bigger environment. And I rather naughtily, perhaps, realized that I had an advantage because I worked for Exxon. So when it came to chartering at that time, I was little Miss Exxon. And that meant that if I was able to go and if I was part of this new organization, then it was a lot easier for other women who worked for maybe other petrochemical companies or who worked for smaller companies who might not have been able to attend some of these events or go for this training. But if you had the big names behind it, and attending, these women were more likely to be able to get out of the office. And so I have to admit, I was a little bit shameless in using that. Well, as long as it works, <laughs> I don't see anything wrong there. And what advice would you give women who are entering into the industry today? 
I mean, I'm actually quite disappointed. And we had a big sort of birthday anniversary dinner at uh, the IMO offices of Worcester last year. And each of the founding members could be found, you know, gave a little speech for a few minutes. And my speech focused on the fact I actually find it's quite sad that Worcester still exists. I would have hoped all those years ago it wouldn't be necessary. It, it wouldn't it wouldn't be there today. Because if you think about it, it's a, a rather sexist thing to do to have a women and shipping and trading organization. So I had hope that we would have moved a bit further than, and a bit faster than we actually have. And I hope, you know, we have no need for such groups at some time in the future, sooner rather than later. But what we find is that it's really still difficult to get women into the industry today because women will tend to come out with their degree and then when they look at these industries they're more likely to go into pharma you know we're not actually seeing the cvs you're never going to have a truly diverse organization if you don't have diverse applications so if you only have 15 or 16 percent of those applications are women then how are you going to get to 50 50 if that's where you want to go or 40 60 or whatever your plan is you're not going to do that. Now, if you want to recruit the best people, then if you've only got 15% of those CVs are women, you're not going to really be recruiting that many women, either that or you're going to be making a mistake and you're going to be selectively recruiting women over men who might be better. And mm. for me, that is a slippery slope because people will begin to think, and you know, maybe none of us should care what people think, but it kind of puts you on a bit of a pedestal and are you there because you're female or are you there because you were the best person for the job? And so I think for women today, just, just apply. The thing about women from what I've seen is women will wait until 120% ready before they'll apply for a, a job. You know, they somehow or other, psychologically, most women, they're not going to put their hat into the ring unless they're kind of sure that they meet all the criteria, they tick all the boxes. I mean, so my advice would be, look, if you're 70% ready, 65% ready, 85% ready, give it a go, try. All you can do is fail. And if you fail, then, okay, you've learned something. Go and do it again and do it slightly differently until you succeed. Because, you know, otherwise you're putting yourself in a box, you know, maybe you didn't need to be in. We've definitely seen that at the Women's Energy Council as well, in terms of listening to women make decisions on job applications, but even putting themselves forward for speaking opportunities. And the men generally will say, yeah, okay, cool, what do I need to do? And they might not even ask that question and just turn up on the day, whereas mm. women will often reply and say, oh, I'm not sure actually whether I've got the right knowledge or whether I've had the right experience or whatever and they always question whether they're the right person to speak and they are because we've asked them to and <laughs> um, there must be a reason but there's this kind of doubt unless they have exactly everything every mm. criteria hit that they're not sure if that's the decision that they should be making. And that's where mentoring is important. Organizations, companies like yours, who need to say well there's a reason I'm asking you and if I didn't think you were ready I wouldn't be asking you so enough yeah. Stop it. You know, but at the same time, I mean, we have to be careful because, you know, 50% of the population is male and they're as entitled as we are, you know, to those opportunities. And I think balance in all things. Is it in balance now? No, it isn't. Should it be in balance? I think it would make our companies stronger. There's work and I think is in the financial services industries where Bloomberg have actually done a lot of work. And this isn't a part of Bloomberg. They're really 
have a lot of data and do a lot of statistics. And they found that companies where you have a more diverse board, a more diverse management structure, a more diverse workforce outperform the indices. And I think that's, again, not because they make better decisions, but they have different viewpoints. They're coming to the table with different experiences, whether that's a different culture, a different sexual orientation, different age, different educational background, that all enriches the decision-making process and it makes the companies make fewer mistakes. I think those are interesting numbers and I think there's a great deal of truth in it and Mm -hmm. something we should all be looking at more carefully. Well, it's not conscious of time. And just as we finish up, I wanted to ask you, I don't know what the answer to this question is, considering the career that you've had so far with the addition of then things like fish and sheep farming (laughs) thrown in as well. But do you have any, and also I'm conscious that you don't plan and you take opportunities when they come up, but do you have any career goals on the top of your mind, things you'd still like to achieve? You made me sound quite random. I don't know if that's true. (laughs) But hey, it's worked. Uh, you know, I can be quite calculated, but I like the randomness of it because I like ideas. I don't think I have one career goal. I probably have dozens of things that I'd still like to do. Uh, you know, I find it really interesting some of the stuff I'm doing now because we sold part of our company some years ago to a Chinese mainland Chinese company, and that's been fascinating. I mean, that's been really, really interesting. And they're doing all sorts of interesting things in China, you know, building plants, building PDH units, looking at terminals, you know, further industrialization in China, but doing it in a really interesting way, looking at emissions, building plants in forests. And not because they've cut down the forest, but because they've actually reforested and replanted an area, you know, was an industrial site before. And I find that fascinating. And looking at that, it's lots of fun to look at slightly different parts of the business. So I'm enjoying doing that. And how long I'll be doing that, I don't know, I guess, as long as they don't get fed up with some of my crazy ideas. Um, (laughs) I have a feeling you're going to be doing that for a long while, yeah. kind of look pretty healthy I could probably be doing this for another 10 years because I'm the chair of our board and fortunately in Asia we look at age perhaps a little bit differently and that's why I think age is an important thing in diversity as well and that's actually a career goal of mine if you want one is actually that reverse mentoring figuring out a way certainly in our companies where we can do more reverse mentoring you know we've all got aging population most of us have aging populations we're going to lose a lot of skill sets. I mean, in our industry, how do we transfer those skill sets? How do we keep people, you know, who are not going to be growing into the next management position, the next management position, the next management position, either because the opportunity isn't there or because they don't want to? And how do we harness those skills? I mean, that sort of HR part of it fascinates me. And I'm busy, I think, driving our HR people crazy on that at the moment. But don't worry, I think everyone thinks that about their boss in some respect. (laughs) Well, listen, Gina, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been lovely talking to you today. And I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Okay. well, you have a nice afternoon, Amy, and it was nice talking to you as well. Thank you so much, Gina. (laughs) Bye bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Tune in next time to hear more valuable insights from others leading transformation in the energy industry.